Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hey, it's Anna. In this episode, we talk about suicide and suicidal ideation. If you're struggling or just need to talk to someone, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. When your kids are little and they're acting inappropriately, you can put your foot down. You say, no, we're not, you know, we're not doing this. This is not happening. When your kid is as big as you are and totally willing and able to hurt you, Putting your foot down doesn't really help. (laughs) This is Death, Sex, and Money. Why do people have to die? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Oh, you don't have a boyfriend. Oh, okay. And need to talk about more. I go paycheck to paycheck for my whole life. I'm Anna Sale. When I think about parenting... I think about Diane Gill Morris. I first interviewed her three years ago about the ways being a mother has not been at all what she imagined. Both her sons have autism. They have limited language ability and have support workers who help them with daily tasks at home. When we first spoke, Diane was thinking a lot about how parenting would work as her kids got older. I don't know that there's going to be a place for them when they're adults. I mean, that still has to be my priority as a mother, no matter how old they are. Or how old you are. And no matter how old I am, yes. Um, the hard part is just accepting that this is quite conceivably the rest of my life. We just re-released that episode yesterday. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen. Today, Diane's sons, Kenny and Theo, are 19 and 17. I checked in with her to find out what's changed as her sons have gotten older and become young men. In between working full-time and managing her son's care, it's hard for Diane to find a time to speak privately. She took my call on her cell phone, sitting in her car outside of her office in North Carolina. Okay, good. When I emailed you to check in, you described your last year as a dumpster fire that turned into a massive inferno. (laughs) What's been going on? Oh, well, um, so let's go back to last year. Uh, Things started getting really bad with Theo. Um, Theo is Diane's younger son. And as he's become an older teenager, he's become more easily agitated. One day, Diane said he couldn't find something he was looking for. Theo was freaking out about that and um, started uh, hitting me. Uh, I tried to wrestle him to the floor, but he uh, is, you know, now really big. And so he flipped me right off of him. And then he started kicking at me and his leg came down and slammed my head into the floor. And I had a big old bump on my head. And that was just something that something just above and beyond anything that had ever happened before. Was that the first time you were really scared physically of your son? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yes. I mean, I, yeah, it, I, you know, I, I always felt in the past that we had at least some level of, I could turn on my, you know, my, my stern mommy voice 
and usually at least get things relatively under control. And if you had to, you know, restrain him, had to get him on the floor and pin him down, I could do that. I, you know, I was big enough. I could do that. But um, realizing that that was not going to happen anymore, that I couldn't restrain him because he was literally able to flip me off of him was terrifying. Um, you know, and I don't usually uh, cry after the boys have some, if the boys have some kind of issue, but man, I just, I was just bald after that. Was there part of you that when he hurt you physically, that it was hurt, hurt emotionally, like it hurt your feelings that he would do that? Oh yeah. Fuck yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the, he's my baby, right? I mean, he, he, we are, I always felt like we were really close. Um, and yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt not just physically, but it hurt really emotionally. It was like, it, I couldn't believe that he did that to me. I couldn't believe he hurt me like that. Um, you know, he said he was sorry a lot afterwards. Um, but I, but yeah, it hurt a lot. It was kind of devastating. All of this was happening as Diane thought the family was heading toward more long-term stability. She, the boys, and her husband, Greg, had moved into a new house in 2017 to live with her aging parents. Diane's father was suffering from dementia. You know, we were just trying to be helpful to each other, you know, hoping that, you know, Greg, my, Greg and I could help my mother with my father and my mom could uh, help us with a bit with the kids. Um, we found this fantastic house that has uh, basically two completely separate living areas. So the adults were on one floor with the with our own kitchen and bedrooms and bathrooms and everything. And the boys had their own floor with their own kitchen, their own bathroom, their own bedroom. So we thought this would be a great setup for them. Um, but then um, actually on my parents' 44th wedding anniversary, uh, my father suffered a major brain bleed. And um, two weeks later, he died. And so this has been very difficult and complicated. When you think about your grief for your father, when there was so much transition happening in the house, where do you think your grief went? You know, it's been a very, I I was confused by my reaction in that, you know, I didn't, you know, break down and cry and that sort of thing. Um, but what I found in the months, the weeks and months after he died was that I was intensely angry. Um, and for like no freaking reason, I would just be like, I, you know, I'd be thinking about things that happened a decade ago. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to go to a therapist. And she like took one look at me. She's like, no, your problem isn't anger. Your problem is grief. Um, you've grieved over the life that you thought you were going to have with your family and, you know, grief for all the things that my kids have had to go through. And now, you know, adding the death of my father on top of that, it's like it all lives in the same place in your, in your brain or your heart or your soul, whatever. And so that just like added on to that because I had no way of really dealing with, with the other grief that it just added on to that and became anger. Did having someone name it as grief make the anger feel less consuming? Or did you feel it the same way? Yo, yeah. No, that helped a lot. <laughs> well, you know, so, so it helped and it also complicated things. Because 
it helped because it was like, it, it was just so like, oh, okay, I get this now. And so when I would feel my anger rise up, I would ask myself, what are you really reacting to? And then I could, you know, be like, okay, no, I'm not really, you know, this is really what's going on in my brain at the moment. But the flip side of that was that when things got really bad with Theo, um, I didn't have the defense mechanism that I used to have. You know, I, I couldn't just get angrier or whatever. I just, and then I, and because I hadn't really resolved the other grief issues at that point, um, it would just push me to a point beyond which I could cope. You lost your tool. Yeah, I mean, you know, it might not be the healthiest defense mechanism, but it it, it, it was like a firewall, you know, that I had. Um, and by working on breaking it down, I kind of left myself without protection when I needed it. Diane needed it because Theo's behavior was getting worse. After the fight where he kicked Diane in the head, he continued having blow-ups. You could keep Theo calm as long as you acquiesced to everything that he wanted. And I had to make sure my voice stayed calm no matter what because I had to make sure that I didn't set him off accidentally. We literally lost control of our own lives and our own household because because we're all afraid of, you know, our own child. It was, you know, we were terrified of the possibility that he would, you know, fear would break somebody's arm, you know, be it one of ours or his own. Um, it was a really horrible situation. For the first time ever, Diane and her husband felt that they couldn't handle having one of their sons at home. So last spring, they decided to send Theo away. He got on a wait list for a program at a state institution for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and would be gone for 45 days. We bought this whole fucking house with the idea that they would always be able to live at home. They would always have, this place could always be their home. Um, and he, you know, and Theo's my younger one. You know, I, I certainly wasn't even, it wasn't even on my radar for him to not be at home. Um, so, yeah, sending him there was um, dramatic for all of us. What was it like for you to make that decision? Um, it, 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 it devastated me um, completely. I mean, I, um, I just really went down a very uh, a dark place. I just... Um, I think in the past, one thing I was always able to hold on to was like this optimism that, okay, things aren't great right now, but we can figure out how to make them better. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, um, it felt like everything I'd done for the past 15, 15 years was completely for not, it, you know, nothing. Um, because here we were after all these years of, therapy and working with him and everything and we were exactly at the place that I never wanted us to be where we were sending him somewhere else Mm. um and yeah and I just got um really severely depressed um I was crying all the time I mean I was I would just be it, it, it took like like all my energy to get through the day at work or whatever and not just be bursting into tears at every second it was I was I was I was a complete wreck um and yeah and and 
you know, your, 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 your brain can spiral, you know, um, because, you know, it became not just, this is a bad moment, but this is, this has been bad. Everything is bad. Things are always going to be bad, you know? Um, and I just, and I got to a point where I was, um, where I was suicidal. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. It, it was, you know, I, in my head at the moment, it wasn't even actually, I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself. I would, cause I didn't think I had the guts. So it was more, I'm afraid I'm not going to kill myself and I'm going to have to continue living like this. And I just can't. And so I went to see my um, primary care physician um, and told her, um, I just burst into tears. It was, it could not barely get a word out. Um, and finally managed to, and she was like, okay, you need, you need intervention and you need it right now. Um, and I ended up in the, uh, local psych hospital for four days, which was, um, pretty, uh, traumatic experience. And necessary, it sounds like. Yes, and necessary. What did it feel like for you to accept care, to be the person who needed extra support. Honestly, it was it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, what happens after Diane accepts care after years of being the caregiver? I could not do anything. And that was just a tremendous relief. Uh, even for a short period of time. Hey, it's Katie, one of the producers here at the show. And a couple of weeks ago, we asked you to tell us about your experiences of being laid off. So far, we've heard from hundreds of you about crying in your cars, slashing your spending, and mustering the courage to tell friends and family that you were looking for work. A listener named Dom in London told us that he's been laid off twice, once back in 2006 and then again just a few months ago. The first time, he was part of a big group of people who also lost their jobs. But this time, the layoff felt personal. The role I was doing was unique. Uh, What I was offering was unique. Um, And at some point, they just turned around and said, we don't think we should pay you to do that. They then offered me a possibility to explain what I did in some sort of PowerPoint presentation. I had the PowerPoint for my life. Uh, And at that point, I just wanted to be done. That was back in November, and Dom's still looking for work. But he's also thinking about starting his own business. I just don't trust companies anymore. Um, Right now, it's scary. Um, I had some savings, and I had a little bit of severance package coming out from this one. But it's running out, um, and I don't know what to do. If you've been laid off and don't know what to do either, we've got something that might help. We've set up a text line where you can get some of the advice that other listeners have sent in after going through their own layoffs. There are some really good practical tips in there, and some pep talks too. Text laid off to 70101 to get started. On the next episode, Chef Jose Andreas runs a restaurant empire that spans North America. But when it comes to raising his three daughters, he's less confident. 
I don't know before Google how dads did it. Wait, what, what have you Googled? What have you Googled about parenting? How to be a father. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After years of being the primary caregiver for her two autistic sons, Diane Gilmorris reached a breaking point last year, and she got help after checking herself into a state-run psychiatric hospital. It was amazing how even just 24 hours after getting there, my brain cleared. Hmm. But just getting out of the stressful situation, getting out of that situation where you're walking on eggshells all the time and your body's tense every second because you're not sure what's going to happen next. Just getting it made my brain. So it was like all of a sudden, oh, okay, I can think straight again. <laughs> Why was it just four days? Because I want, because I just, I just didn't want to stay there anymore. I mean, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a facility where, th- where there was a whole lot of like really positive things going on. And the place was in desperate need of somebody to just clean the whole damn thing. Um, and I just was kind of like, I just don't want to be here anymore. Um, they would have kept me longer. Um, ex- but the fact that I was voluntary, uh, they didn't really have a choice. Diane did stay on the antidepressants that the doctors at the hospital prescribed for her. They helped, but they didn't dull the pain of sending Theo away. He'd been gone several weeks when we talked. Um, the first week was it was just very depressing. It was very sad. You'd hear the little noises in the house, and for a minute you'd think, oh, is that Theo? And then you'd be like, no, it's not Theo, because Theo's not here. Um, yeah, it was just so sad, because all you could think about was what he must be going through at that moment. Because uh, we tried to prepare him, but that stressed him out so much that we had to back off and basically not prepare him mm. and lie to him and tell him we were just going 
to this place for a little for the day and um and then leave them there um which was so you know not the way we wanted to approach it at all um they they had a really hard time with him um for that first week he was you know very aggressive and upset and understandably so um it was very it was just very hard i was just very sad and um but then so then i did go see him the following week so greg and i went to go see him and he's he's just kind of like why are you here bye mommy daddy (laughs) (laughs) wait a minute (laughs) what the hell um and so yeah it was it was bizarre and and so when we left there it was like oh wow okay and so then we started you know having date nights and um, you know, just kind of relaxing, and I've seen more movies probably in the in this past six weeks than I've seen in like a you know a year the past year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but now that he's going to be coming home in a um little bit, uh, I don't know another week. Um, you know, I'm already having trouble sleeping and stuff like that, um, and feeling my stress level go back up. Has the idea come up at all with you and your husband about? whether something more permanent might be appropriate? Um, it, we, we have not discussed it yet. Um, I mean, certainly right now, my right now our focus is very much on making sure that trying to figure out how to make sure his transition home is successful and that we don't, end up back in the same routines because that would be a situation where we would end up having to say, you know, he needs to go, he needs to go live elsewhere because we can't handle it anymore. So, um, I'm, we're just trying, you know, focus super hard on making sure that we put in whatever systems it is that he needs to be able to be successful at home. And we are going to, you know, do everything we can to make sure that works. Mm-hmm. But certainly, if we end up back where we were, you know, a couple months ago, um, that is going to have to be a conversation. Do you have other parents to talk to? Parents of kids with autism or adults with autism? Um, I haven't really talked. Most of my friends don't even know that he's there. I just really, I just haven't wanted to talk about it. Um, you know, I think it's a hard. It's one of the harder things that folks in our community just don't always want to talk about and. I think in large part because we all feel judged when, you know, somebody has to make a decision, you know, you, you just feel like even if nobody's judging you, you still feel like everybody's going to judge you for it. That's Diane Gill Morris. Since we talked, Theo has come home from the treatment center and he's doing better. He's on new medication and they've added more structure to his day to manage anxiety. The plan for now is to keep Theo at home long-term. But while Theo was gone, Diane and her husband realized that their older son, Kenny, really liked having some time away from his little brother. They're now researching group home options for him. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Joanna Solitaroff, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. 
And if you're new to the show, welcome. Sign up for our weekly newsletter where we share listener emails, podcast recommendations, and more at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. And again, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts or just need to talk to someone, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. During Diane's time in the psychiatric hospital, her husband Greg took over the day-to-day management of their son's care. She told me she thinks it went okay without her. When I call him from the hospital, he would just be like, everything is fine. And if it weren't, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.